Welcome to the Old Time Radio Westerns. I'm your host, Andrew Rines, and today's episode is brought to you by Amazon.com. If you plan doing any online shopping first, go to otrwesterns.com slash Amazon to start your shopping experience today. Well, today's episode is going to be Horizons West. That's right, that continuing saga of Lewis and Clark. Original air date on this episode is January 9th, 1966, and this is Chapter 9. Don't forget, we only got to Chapter 13, so we had about four more episodes. And the title of this one is Homeward Bound. Hope you enjoy, and I hope you guys enjoy this series. American West. Once it could have been the British, Spanish, or even the Russian West. It became American primarily because of the explorations of two young army officers, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Their pioneering journey stands as one of the great achievements in the history of the United States. Remember that bluff to port, Bill. You think we ought to put it between us and the main channel? Why not? It's an island. I hope you're right. Otherwise, we come back and try the other side. Where's the gamble? Water is not near as rough here. I wish all our boats handled as easy as this one. This kind they won't sell. This kind you have to steal. We didn't steal it. We didn't. I left five dollars by the tree where we found it. You left five dollars after the way those people sold from us all winter. I guess it was my strict upbringing. Cruzette, hold back, will you? We've run away from the other boat. Yes, sir. Someone's catching up to us from behind. It's a canoe like this. Indian rough water canoe. With an Indian in it. Merriweather, he's trying to get our attention. Looks like a clutch-up warrior. Uh, want me to wait for him, sir? Yes. Columbia. Columbia East to the Shining Mountains. Go wrong way. Wrong way? This not island. This finger of land. Go back. Other side bluff main channel. Hmm. I was wrong. We thank you very much. Like a pixie canoe? Very good. Big canoe. My canoe. You mean our canoe? Live five silver medal at three. Take back. That's white man's money to pay for the canoe. Show it to the next trading ship, Captain. It'll buy you a boatload of blue beads. No one silver medal. Take back. All right, but we need the canoe. Canoe. My canoe. We'll pay you anything you want. How about this, uh, this fine elk skin? Mm. Elk skin. Good. Give five. One. Five. No. No trade. When other canoes come, we give you back this canoe. Four elk skin. Two. Two skin. I sell. Prasap, pay him. Here you are. Two fine elk skin. Mm. 
Now, good canoe, your canoe. Turn round. Take main channel, other side bluff. Horizons West, the continued story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now with Harry Bartell as Meriwether Lewis and John Anderson as William Clark, listen to Chapter 9, Homeward Bound. March 23, 1806. The Lewis and Clark Corps of Discovery had left dismal Fort Placid at the mouth of the Columbia River and was beginning the return trip from Oregon to St. Louis. With almost no trade goods, short on essential equipment, and carrying the ailing Private Bratton, the valiant men of the expedition faced a journey that required a second arduous crossing of the Rockies and over 2,000 miles of difficult, twisting travel down the Missouri River. That night, encamped on the River Island, we stuffed ourselves with venison cooked as only Tuisson Charbonneau could cook it. Basking before a warm fire, the men were happier than I'd seen them in months. Bourbon fat beer. Good hunting, George. I was lucky today, Captain. And good cooking, Charbonneau. Oh, merci. It was good for a chance to have something to cook, huh? I ran um, into an Indian today. He said the tribe upriver are starving. With all those fish in the river? God. You see any fish coming up river? Well, I wasn't specially looking for them. Salmon don't run for another month. Just how good is the hunting here, George? Well, uh, it is uh, supposed to be better on Deer Island and Wapato upstream a little further, according to that Indian. Want to hold up a few days, Meriwether? Might be a good idea. Send most of the party out to hunt, dry the meat, make us some jerky. Well, a few days is all that we need. Uh, just to get enough meat to take us uh, to the upland. A little past the uplands. We'll stay. At Wapato, if that's the best. Uh, Sergeant Gass will want an early start in the morning. Yes, sir. As soon as we reach the island, we'll set up drying racks for the meat. Uh, you'll be in charge of that, Charbonneau. Yes, sir. Captain Clark, we're going to have to build fires to dry the meat in this rain. That's right. Better get them started. I looked across the river toward the south. The land undulated to meet the mountains we called the Cascades, some high enough to be crowned with perpetual snow. To the west, the lush lowlands lifted toward a range of coastal mountains. I could see them clearly as the rain stopped. What's on your mind, Billy? That South Valley. There ought to be a river draining it. A big one, entering the Columbia. Only we didn't see a sign of one coming west. It could be there, hidden from us by islands. Look. What? Those vultures overhead. Sergeant Ordway, tell the carrying parties to stick closer to the hunters. The vultures kept an obscene surveillance of the island, moving in the direction of each gunshot, spiraling downward with swift gracefulness. 
Fortunately, the killing of a number of these birds seemed to make the others more wary. They kept their distance, and the men got to the meat first. Attracted by the shots, two lean young Kashuk Indian braves heading downriver beached the canoe and, making the sign of friendship, trotted over to Meriwether Lewis at one of the fires. They were given food, and something they said as they ate brought Meriwether to me in great excitement. Billy, your instincts are right, as usual. I guess we could say you're as good a geographer as we are as a hunter. Now, uh, what are you getting at? Those two braves are Kashuks. They live in the valley you've been wondering about, and it is drained by a big river they call the Multnomah. I thought so. Meriwether will be here almost a week, drying and curing the meat. Why don't I reconnoiter southward? Well, we could spare a half dozen men and hire one of the Kashuks as a guide. Yes! Sergeant Gass! Yes, sir. I'll go bargain with the Kashuks. Sergeant Gass reporting. Get five men who can be spared from the work. Packs for a week. We're taking a trip across the river. Yes, sir. Uh, we'll leave in a couple of hours. Yes, sir. Meriwether persuaded one of the braves to be our guide by giving him a burning glass. Shortly before noon, my party left the island in one of the large canoes. Sergeant Gass, beside the guide, relayed directions to Cruzat at the tiller. We maneuvered through a cluster of islands. I didn't realize we were actually into the Multnomah until we were several miles upstream. Captain, no wonder we never spotted this from the north bank of the Columbia. Who says river? Strong current. We passed several island villages, but did not stop because the people were Kashuks. And I was afraid that if our guide was allowed a reunion with his people, he would refuse to go any farther. Late in the day, we reached a village that featured a big double house with perhaps a hundred canoes drawn up around it. Our guide explained that this was the main lodge of the Mayor Chekyu tribe. We decided to land and buy some roots and fish for supper. Little closer, Krasat. Yes, sir. Punch bottom. That's it. You men out. Call her up. Sergeant, let's pay our respects to the chief. Yes, sir. You stay near the boat. Watch out for thieves. Let's go. Well, that looks like the main entrance. I can see people inside. Nobody's bothering to come out and welcome us. At least nobody's pointing any weapons at us. I guess we can go in, sir. There was a fire in the center of the lodge, and around it were grouped warriors and elders. The deeper shadows of the place were quite a few squaws and children. The old man in the middle, Captain. He's the chief. I think so. I am friend. I am one of chiefs of white men who stayed many moons on the Columbia. You have chief, one who speaks white man's talk. I speak. I ne'er check you. I, Chief. I am Captain Clark. I come from President Jefferson of the great American states. We no make trade. No like white trader. I do not trade. I need food for my men. No food. I buy food. Give fine skin. No food for white man. But... I will pay well. No food. 
White man, no welcome. White man, go. What do we do, Captain? Call the men and use force? No, no, no. Watch me. I am not white man. I am white demon. Give food or I make bad medicine. Put curse on Nayer Tekiu. What man? Go! Or warrior will kill! See, compass in my hand. Straight needle. See, unfriendly one. When I speak name of great white father, Jefferson. Fire change color. Go bad. Explode. Needle on compass. Go crazy. I call great spirit. Great spirit, curse! They are taking you! Fire spits! Fire green! Look at compass, old chief! Look at needle! Spin! Stop! Stop! Fire! Stop, needle! Stop! You give! Food, stop, fire, stop, curse, no, stop, stop, I give food, good salmon, good roots, good food, all you want. An inch of artillery fuse and a pocket magnet had turned me into a magician. Palming the magnet behind the compass had been easy. And when I pronounced the name Jefferson, I had tossed the fuse into the fire. Now, with his people moaning fearfully in the back of the lodge, the chief trembled before me, begging for me to stop the spitting green fire in the whirling compass. I held long enough for the fuse to start to burn out. Then I held up my arm. Oh, great demon! Plenty food! Good salmon! Good roots! Jefferson! The fire became normal, and with the magnet back in my pocket, the compass needle held quivering on the north. Obeying the chief, squaws rushed to get the fish and roots we needed. The food was placed in our canoe, and we pushed off, watched by a respectful, if not friendly, audience. Who's that? You should have seen the captain. I tell you, it was like one of them stage actor fellows back home in New England. <laughs> I wish I had. You know, Captain, you will be mentioned in Indian history as a leading demon. We spent that day and the following one in upstream exploration. Stopping at one of the upper villages, we were given a friendly reception by an old chieftain. He drew us a map of the river from source to union with the Columbia. <laughs> On the sixth day of April, Billy Clark and his party returned and regaled us with the story of their trip. The following morning, we packed the boats and headed upstream. Ah, this is a pleasant way to travel, huh? Through pleasant country. Hey, enjoy it while you can. A day or so, and we hit the white water. For that, we'll do better along the north shore. Yes, sir. The south gets rougher the nearer we get to the narrows. As we approached the first of the Cascade portages, Indian thievery grew worse and worse. The boats were safe only when manned and out on the river. 
Every minute in camp, our sentinels, we now kept a continuous watch, had to be alert. Ah! Get away from that canoe! We're at up! Yeah. If I'm tomahawk you got there... Oh, you don't understand, huh? That axe looks just like Johnny Coulter's tomahawk that was stolen last year. Now, come on. Give it to me. Ah, oh, so that's the way it is. All right, we'll see. Give me that axe. Now, get out of here. What do you know about that? Coulter's long-missing axe. Coulter, come here and get your tomahawk back. We reached the foot of the rapids and put into shore where Indians by the dozens and half-dozens came to observe us, try to steal from us, and then sneak away. We posted guards on the boats the moment they were beached and unloaded. White House, Willard, LePage, Collins, watch that baggage! I led the way in reconnoitering the steep and slippery trail over the rocks of the riverbank. Men could barely negotiate it with packs. Each boat had to be dragged up the rapids by means of a tow rope manipulated by six to eight men on the precipitous trail. As we moved, Indians followed closely, making mocking noises and threatening gestures. Uh, oh, stay away from us. Stay away, or I slit your throat. Hey, Captain, perhaps if I shoot over their heads. There will be no shooting, Chabonneau. Now, let's keep moving. I restrained the men. The taunting savages were lucky to escape with a few kicks and cuffs. We labored mightily to beat the coming darkness and lost out. We were compelled to camp halfway through the portage. Guards stood over boats and baggage at both ends of the unfinished task. Several attempts at the baggage, foiled by our guards, kept the men from sleep. By dawn, they were all up again, refusing breakfast in their hurry to get the portage completed. We have to fight Indians. We can't do it strung out all over the riverbank. Let's get this over. Ah, get the boats up. And tonight, ah, I cook a special supper, huh? Despite a cold drizzle that drifted down most of the day, we sweated like men marching under a midsummer sun. Finally, the boats were arrayed neatly together and reloaded at the flat area above the rapids. I was changing the guard when I first missed my dog, Scannon. I asked Cruzette about it. I haven't seen him, sir, not since I ran an Indian away from him. Ran an Indian away from Scannon? Yes, sir. He had been giving Scannon food... The first couple of times, Scannon growled, and the last time, he wagged his tail. Captain, these Indians are very short on the food. I think they are trying to lure Scannon to the camp kettle. Captain! Captain! Take that, Scannon. Here we are. Chabonneau, yes. Cruzac, come on. Gas, you lead the way. Northeast, sir. Toward their village. As we ran, I thought of what the big Newfoundland had come to mean to me and the men. He had traveled with me from Pittsburgh to St. Louis and with the expedition from St. Louis to the Pacific. He had caught squirrels and even antelope when we needed food. He'd saved our lives a number of times and he'd served as a valiant alert sentry. We were going to get him back unharmed if we had to fight every Indian this side of the Lolo Pass. There they are, up ahead in the trees. Come on, man, faster. 
There were probably ten Braves in the Indian band, about a quarter of a mile ahead of us. They had tied a piece of rope about Scannon's neck, which compelled him to follow along, although he refused to move faster than a dignified trot. We gained on them rapidly. Half the Indians, frightened by our pursuit, simply faded away among the trees. The others stopped under our leveled rifles, dropped the leash, and made frantic, if hypocritical, gestures of friendship. Come here, Scannon. Come here, boy. You all right, boy? Check him over real good, Captain. Make sure nothing's wrong. He seems all right. He better be all right. Captain, what do we do with these thieves? Hey, Captain, killing one or two will teach the others not to interfere with us. Shavanos hit the right idea, sir. Just give me the word. If he did that, we'd be risking war with their entire nation. We'll let him go. We'll be glad we got Scannon back. But, Captain, That's we... an order. Yes, sir. All right, get. Get! Back at our camp, I discussed this last outrage with Billy Clark, and we agreed that we'd taken enough abuse from the Indians. We summoned the local chieftains to a council and told them bluntly that we intended to kill the next thief who invaded our camp. The chiefs protested that what happened had been the work of a malcontent group, men who had once suffered at the hands of white traders. Solemnly, the chiefs promised to control their people. On April 14, we reached Salilo. The falls were even more formidable than I remembered. With Cruzat, Billy and I reconnoitered possible portage routes. Oh, spring thaws put a lot more fast water in the river than last winter, sir. There's no way to avoid long portages. It's ironic. We need horses that we have plenty of horses up in the Nespers country. Is that going upstream from here? How much can we use canoes? Well, probably more than you think we can, sir. But those extra long portages are going to waste time. If we can get any horses at all to tote baggage, we'd be better off on shore. I thought so. Right now, I'd give a hundred dollars in gold for a few pounds of blue beads. We'd get horses in a hurry. Billy, you're pretty good at trading. If you took all the trade goods we have left and went on ahead, you think you could get us eight or ten pack animals? I can try. I'll bring the boats up as fast as I can. You bring me horses and we'll put them right to work. We'll take the unloaded spare canoes and trade them to the people farther upriver for additional horses. Good, good. I want Gaz, Charbonneau, and Willard. We'll leave first thing in the morning. The next morning, I set out to do some horse trading with the upriver people. Most of them didn't like us and seemed to take pleasure in pretending they were going to trade and then changing their minds at the last minute. We spent night after night in cold, dirty huts that were infested with vermin. We slept without blankets, hanging onto our rifles, and most of the time we were hungry. The men were able to subsist on Indian dog meat, but I couldn't take that. I stuck to boiled wapato roots. Maybe this outrageous diet had something to do with it, I don't know, but we soon reached a point of rebellion. The mice, they run up and down my body all night long. Captain, shoot me for insubordination if you will, but I will not spend another night in those foul I huts. thought all the mice were after me. No, Charbonneau, no more dirty huts. We're going to get a decision today or stop trying. Now, there are two villages a few miles ahead. Gas and I will take one, you and Willard the other. Whatever you say, Captain.
With the aid of Sergeant Gass, I divided the trade goods into what I thought were attractive assortments. When Gass and I reached our village, we smoked a pipe with the chief, then laid out our trade goods in front of his teepee. Let it be known that we wanted horses. For the best animals, they wanted more goods than we could possibly give. But by the end of the day, we managed to acquire three fair-looking horses. Afraid the Indians would change their minds, we quit the village, retraced our steps a few miles, and waited for Charbonneau and Willard, just beyond their village. Presently, they came toward us, leading a beautiful mare that would have done any show ring in Virginia proud. I see you got three, Captain. I hope they don't fall down dead when we put baggage on their back. Huh? <laughs> that one of yours is a beauty. Our three swaybacks will carry more than she will. Did you uh, actually trade for her, Charbonneau? Uh, you mean did I steal her? Yeah. <laughs> no, sir. I would have, but uh, they were watching, so I had to trade. How much did you pay? Uh, well, my ermine coat, ten elk's teeth, uh, and my shirt. But you're wearing a shirt. Oh, I mean the new one that Sacagawea made for me at Fort Platts Up. Uh, Captain, you know, I have the feeling I'm no horse trader. As fine a horse as this is, I have paid too much for her. We decided to extend our horse trading expedition another two days. Again, we separated and met at the close of the two-day interval. Gas and I had four more horses, pretty poor specimens, but the best we could find. Then Willard and Charbonneau arrived. They brought in another quality mare, almost as fine an animal as the first one Charbonneau had acquired. Charbonneau himself was naked from the waist up. <laughs> Look at Charbonneau, Captain. Look at him. They got his last shirt. Uh, I told you I was a poor... Oh, I have a spare shirt. I'll loan you. Uh, merci, Captain. By the end of the month of April, we had reached the point where our canoes were of no further use to us. Billy's horse trading expedition had brought us only a minimum of horses, and some of them had run away or had been stolen. We needed a few more to carry our baggage into friendly country. Now, sneering savages stood about our camp, enjoying our predicament. Billy and I offered them our canoes for three more horses, but they refused. They think uh, we will have to leave the canoe behind, though. Then they would get them for nothing. Uh, what's for supper tonight, Charbonneau? Deal, sir. What's supper got to do with trading canoes for horses? A lot, Merriweather. Those Indians are still hanging around watching. Well, let's give them something to watch. George, chop up one of the dugouts for firewood. What, sir? Ah, I understand. Very good, Billy. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, oh, I understand too, sir. <laughs> for that, hand me that axe. Indians watched stolidly at first, but as Briar started on the second of the dugouts, they began wailing in protest. Then one of them led a horse forward and offered to trade the animal for a canoe. George stopped his axe work. We got the absolute minimum of horses we needed to continue our journey. War party ahead. Halt! Halt! Hey, they are coming fast. 
Gaston. I think they are Walla Wallas. That's Chief Yellow leading them. Glad to see you, Chief Philip. So you're happy to be back among your people. Oh, we too are happy. Tonight we will feast. Big feast for you and your men. You are a good friend, but we have a problem we must solve. We must cross the winding Walla Walla River ahead. Oh, yes. In the morning I will find rafts. Big dugouts. You will cross when you are rested. Come now. It is time for friendship. We smoked the pipe with Yellup and his sub-chiefs, then relaxed before a fire with plenty of good meat before us. Billy, the chief, and I talked of many things. Of our trip to the ocean and our trip back and of the long miles that lay ahead. And the men also relaxed in this atmosphere of hospitality. Then out came Cruzette's violin and the men put on a stomping contest for their Walla Walla friends. Morale was high. Once more, we were sure of reaching our destination. Home. You have been listening to Horizons West, the continued story of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Chapter 9, Homeward Bound, starred Harry Bartell as Meriwether Lewis and John Anderson as William Clark. Featured in the cast were Sebastian Cabot, Carl Swenson, Don Diamond, Bill Quinn, Dal McKinnon, and Paul Conrad. Our story was written by Carly and William Tunberg and directed by William Lally. Sound patterns by Gene Twombly. Michael Rye speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Check out the show notes at otrwesterns.com. Send me an email, podcast at otrwesterns.com. Call the email voicemail, 707-98-OTRDW. Again, that's 707-986-8739. Rate us on iTunes, otrwesterns.com slash iTunes. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter, at otrwesterns. Until the next show, have a great day. And again, thanks for listening.